From the Rose City in beautiful downtown Portland, Oregon, home of bikes, books, bridges, beards, food carts, startups, and indie coffee. Grab your dog, snatch your hammer and beer, leave your umbrella at home. Welcome to the Tiny House Podcast. It's the Tiny House Podcast, and I'm Perry. And I'm MJ. Where's Mark today? I don't know. He's not in the studio. No, he was texting me this morning. Where's everybody? I'm like, hey, I'm here. Where is your bike? (laughs) How come you're not here? We're filling in. We're wearing multiple hats. We are. We're moving and shaking. We are. Mark has got a family emergency, and so he's not able to be with us for the episodes that we're recording today. And so it's just Michelle and I in the studio. And just our luck, we had a triple header. We did. So people are going to have to listen to this story for at least two weeks now, if not three weeks. They're going to be like, really? Can they change the intro next time? That's right. Uh, so yeah, uh, we didn't talk. Uh, speaking of the three shows, we didn't talk in the last show about um, what's going on with the uh, Street of Dreams build. Even though this is going to come out way after the Street of Dreams, but Correct. who cares? Yeah, no, I appreciate that perspective. Mm. Who cares? Uh, they don't call it the Street of Screams for nothing. <laughs> so you would, de- Perry. You know me well enough. You will not at all be surprised by this. My next statement. Uh, my listeners, some of them will laugh at my self admission. I'm a bit of a control freak. <laughs> yeah. And so when things aren't within my control and you start to freak. people don't follow the, I'm going to say it nicely because we have someone on today that's, that's, that's a nice right. guy. That's, that's so I'm going to say it nicely. <laughs> exactly. So when people don't follow like the schedule or do what they want, you know, like that's where I'm at right now. I'm really frustrated because it's getting really, really close. Mm. My list of things to do is now getting longer and longer and longer. Um, based on the fact that other people fell down on the mm. fell down on the job. Mm-hmm. So I've had a couple of frustrating cut days. With that said, however, yesterday was the first big Street of Dreams meeting where the the house is now at the site. We had a big meeting with all the sponsors and donors and builders and everybody, and everybody wanted to come see the Chinese. I bet. So I was also on camera and, you know, press interviews and tours and building and solving problems. And so it's been a couple of very, very, very uh, busy, stressful days. It looks beautiful. So I saw it on ends, Instagram. Yes. It looks great. So the end results are stunning. <clears throat> but I, I hope that, you know, everyone, and maybe they don't, I guess they won't, like, appreciate... What went into it? Wow. It's a good thing that this show is going to come out so long after the Street of Dreams when the builders will have forgotten all of this stuff. Um, what are what are some of the things that have not been taken care of up to this point well, it's, that are and causing it's frustration? Real, like, um, it's it's kind of some of the ancillary stuff. Right. So, for instance, we need to print out the banners and we need to print out some marketing materials. Mm-hmm. And so, guess what? We need logos from 54 sponsors. Oh, yeah. And not all the logos that we got from the sponsors are high resolution. Mm-hmm. So, it's like... I don't have time mm-hmm. to resolve this right now. Mm-hmm. You know, like that, it's the ancillary mm-hmm. stuff. And then there's the stuff that has to be redone. I made a pretty sizable, not pretty sizable, I made a mistake on a paint color. Okay. I need to change the paint. You know, I need to change the color of the doors. The red is not what I had intended. So I need to change the doors. Well, you just can't, you know, take a paintbrush and just kind of paint the door on the Street of Dreams. You know, you got to uninstall the doors yeah. and then we have to 
put up a paint booth and respray them. And uh, the fireplace, for instance, the mantle over the fireplace was not installed to the correct specifications. So we got to tear that completely apart, oh, completely wow. rework it, wow, um, and everything, and completely reinstall it. Mm-hmm. And so. The person that did it the first time didn't have time to fix it, so now I have to bring someone else in entirely and start from scratch. So, and I knew that was going to happen. Like I knew that there would be some stuff that needed to be fixed or needed to be redone until you put the house and go, okay, how does this look? That looks bad. <laughs> We're going to change that. I knew that was going to be expected. Mm-hmm. What I didn't expect is all the ancillary stuff that. Should have been done by now, and it's not done, and so that's the frustrating part. Mm. The house color, that the door color, is it really that significant that you need to change it, or can you just li- can't live with it? Well, the answer to that question is part two parts. Number one, um, <clears throat> yes, because I also commissioned a glass art piece inside oh. of the home, which is red, mm. and the red of the glass piece, which is a permanent fixture that stays in the house forever mm. and ever and ever, is a clash very closely with oh. the door that it sits next to. Oh, I see. So that being said, my answer is unequivocally. I don't care if I have to do it myself in the middle of the night, mm-hmm. it's getting done. Mm-hmm. However, that brings to the second part of the question is maybe not necessarily the paint color, but there are other things on the build that I think need to be changed that other people are trying to talk me out of. Out of changing them? Right, yeah. And I'm like, no. Like, if I have to do it myself, I will do it. So then there becomes that subjectivity associated yeah. with what, quote, unquote, really needs to get yeah. done. And that's the not only the control freak in me, that it's like, I said mm-hmm. it needs to be done. Mm-hmm. I'm not asking for your opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's the also the perspective of not just the subjectivity of what needs to be done from an aesthetic perspective, but also from a logistical perspective. Mm-hmm. So they get to choose what they're going to help with, and then I end up with the what's left. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any time between the end of the Street of Dreams and the bequeathment to the owner for you to do some of this stuff? What do you mean as far as... Like, is there a gap between when the Street of Dreams ends and the person that's going to live in it takes it over that you could, like, do that last-minute stuff? Except for the fact that by then, you know, we've got photographers coming in. We've got a ton of press. I mean, we're hoping to end up in Dwell Magazine. I mean, so there's all this other stuff that's going to happen. And so, of course, I want to present my absolute best foot forward. And I I don't hold any other people um, to a higher level of expectation than I hold myself. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and that's okay. If you're, if I tell you I need something done and you can't do it, that's totally okay. Mm -hmm. I'm not emotionally vested in the answer. I'm emotionally vested in getting an answer. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm learning that I need to be more, I need to get better in communicating that. If your answer is no, cool. Now I know what I need to do. Find someone else, do it myself, put it in the schedule, buy more stuff, whatever. If your answer is, but I was going to do it and then Mm -hmm. I can't do it and so I might do it and it's like, that is not helpful. Mm -hmm. So I'm frustrated today. Can you tell? I'm just a little (laughs) frustrated, but... Like I said, it's beautiful and everybody loves it and they think it's amazing. And I'm, I feel like saying, oh, you have no idea. Like, just wait <laughs> till it's done. And they're like, it looks done. I'm like, no. Well, I, th- I think when the, uh, yeah, when the, um, the new owner moves in, the heavens will part. And music will play and angels yeah. will come from above. And <laughs> exactly. Our guest today is definitely familiar with all of that because he's, a, he's the uh, pastor of a local church here in Portland, Oregon, actually, Southeast Portland. And I um, want to welcome to the show uh, Pastor Matt Huff of the Central Nazarene Church. Matt, welcome to the show. 
Hi, thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you here. Um, can I can I call you Matt or should I call you Pastor? Matt is just fine. Okay, thanks. You sound yeah. you sound kind of young. Are you young? Uh, sure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 30s, 35. Okay, yeah, 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 that's how you sound. How long have you been the pastor at the church there? I've been at Central for four years. Have roughly. you been? Have you always been the pastor or did you move on up? No, I pastored over in Prineville first. I was okay. there for seven years and then moved over here four okay. years ago. Okay, cool. And and th- for the listeners, the reason why we're having you on the show is because, well, Michelle, you want to tell a story because the way you tell is pretty interesting. It, Although it might not be accurate, is that correct? Or yeah, so um, so here in uh, so here in Portland, Oregon, we have we we have kind of like this loop freeway system. We have I five, which kind of runs right through the main side of town. We have another little freeway that kind of loops away and back to I five called two hundred five. Mm-hmm. So I I've been commuting two hundred five back and forth to my build, and I notice right next to the freeway there, there is a large church, and adjacent to that church, there's a road and there's a gravel lot. And over the course of time, I don't, I don't know, probably the last six months or so, I've noticed old what appear to be derelict RVs showing up, you know, on that little lot there. And Portland now has rules that they will allow yeah. people to live in their RVs while, you know, especially churches, I think they're allowed three either tiny house on wheels or RVs on wheels to occupy. So I thought that, great, they're opening up, you know, their side yard or their their side area. The church is opening them up to to people to come live in their RVs. And then I noticed that some of the RVs, and of course I'm not by there every day, so it's like this evolution, like once a week, like, oh. So what appears to me is suddenly suddenly this RV that was there last week is now in pieces, Mm -hmm. like the next week. And I'm like, oh, okay, well maybe they're recycling these parts. And then, like, two weeks goes by, and then I drive by again, and bam, there's, like, a tiny house on wheels. (laughs) So I don't know that that tiny house on wheels was necessarily built from that trailer. But from the evolution of what I've seen, that's what appeared. And then the tiny house disappears, and then another trailer or two or three, like, (laughs) appear, and then they kind of go through the same metamorphosis. So I have been fascinated watching it. Um, I wish I had, like, what do they call those cameras where you click them, like, once a day? Oh, the time-lapse. Time-lapse. Time-lapse photography. I, we'll, have to, we'll have to ask Matt whether or not he has a time lapse of that side. <laughs> that would have been a great idea. I mean, <laughs> it would have. Lot, like yeah, this yeah. evolution of this stuff coming in and then being torn apart and putting back together and then moving out, which I understand presumably is to a different part of the of the property itself. So that's that's my story. I've been fascinated watching it from afar, and so I thought I'd reach out to the church and find out the the backstory. So that's Michelle's perspective. Matt, what's really going on? But that's pretty close to what's happened. Um, so yeah, so what the church has, this had, the church started trying to. We have lots of houseless folks around the church, and so a year or two ago, like two years ago now, we just we we've tried to figure out what does it look like for us to actually love our love God and love our neighbor as we should, and who is our neighbor, and our neighbors are all sleeping in tents or under the bridge, and mm. so we got into the conversation about village building and um through that um we've got 11 acres there on the side of 205 and so we've got a lots of space and so that's kind of long story short i guess we started getting into maybe we could host a village there on the church property well who, what we uh, sorry go ahead. Go, go ahead no go ahead matt i was gonna say what we originally started to do was we were going to take those they call them the zombie trailers that are abandoned yeah. and uh, no longer livable and we were the plan was to 
to take them down to the frame and then build a tiny house on them. And we, so yeah, initially we were destroying trailers and then that just got too, um, too messy. (laughs) And there's all kinds of come to find out, uh, there's all kinds of requirements around asbestos testing and stuff. Yeah. For Hazardous materials. Yeah. Asbestos in the floors and the floor yeah. tiles. Yeah. And, isn't that crazy? So instead of doing that, we're we're still working on building the, the tiny houses or the pods, but they just won't be on trailer frames anymore. Well. Put them on skids? Yep, they'll be on skids. And move them with a forklift? And movable with a forklift. Yay! So, so who was doing the teardown? First of all, how were you getting these things to begin with? So there was a uh, we were working with a group. They're called Cascadia Clusters. They're kind of a new nonprofit, um, and they were they had a source. There was a, a guy that was. <laughs> we all got a guy. <laughs> yeah, there was a guy. Uh, he was an interesting guy, and he, he just uses, would bring these he trailers. Uses my terminology. That, yeah, that he got from. I think he had got them from the city or, or I'm not sure how he got them exactly, but, and donated a couple, I think they paid a couple hundred bucks for one and hmm. that's kind of where they came from. But I've heard bad stories about that guy, by the way. I, isn't that the guy yeah. we talked yes. about? We talked about him several episodes ago where he was sued yes. and he, is that not, the same guy? I think it I might be. I think so. He gets them from the city yeah. or he buys them at auction for 50 bucks because they just want them gone. Yeah. And then he'll sell them in their derelict condition to people, whether they run or not. And he'll say, okay, I'll drop it off on this curb over here and give me 500 bucks and then you can live in it. But I also, uh, heard, I also heard he was taking them to um, North Portland and trying to recycle them or something like that. Regardless, I hope that he's now finding another path. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Matt, okay, so that's where you're getting them. And then who was, who was doing the dismantleization and then the rebuilds? Yeah, so uh, the Cascadia Clusters, there was a couple, there was a guy there named David that would show up and he was, um, he was destroying them himself. How? Um, Chop saw. Piece by piece. They tried to save some of the sheet metal and stuff. Wow. To reuse later. But most of those those trailers just kind of needed just totally destroyed. So, yeah, I mean, it wasn't chainsaw. Like, (laughs) it just tore it apart. And we just threw them in some dumpsters, in a couple of dumpsters, and Hmm. they hauled them off and... At the end of the day, it was more expensive than what it was worth. I bet. So, so when the before the city stopped you doing that, how many houses had you built from in the, with that? Process? Well, we hadn't built any houses on the trailers yet. We had three trailers that were dismantled. I see. There were uh, Cascadia clusters had a couple homes on trailers that were later brought over. Mm-hmm. So, the homes that were the MJ that you saw that came over eventually weren't from the trailers that we dismantled. They were oh. ones that were built somewhere else. So mm-hmm. how did this city yeah. get wind of what you were doing? Um, there, yeah, it was a complaint thing. <laughs> yeah. Somebody <laughs> drove by and saw this pile of garbage. Thousand dollars or 280,000 people <laughs> look over there and go, what yes. in the heck are so, they doing? Yeah. So they came by and said, you can't do that. And I was like, Why? <laughs> It's my property. And they're like, well, any trailers built before 2004 has to have an asbestos test and you have to have an abatement contractor and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, whoa. Whoa. All right. Didn't learn that in seminary. So so much for under the radar. Yeah. Right. Wow. (laughs) They were super gracious. It was a, it was a, 
decent experience with dealing with the city with that piece. So it wasn't it wasn't a super big deal. But how'd you get involved just, with Cascadia clusters? Just through networking with trying to build connections for. Re, I was, I've been trying to network just for resources for the folks that hang out around the church, so that I know better where to send them and how to help them, and and then in just going to several different meetings and committee meetings and just trying to network. I got plugged in with this group. Hmm. And so, so you're, if as I remember that area of town, because I used to go up and down two hundred five a little bit too. That church is surrounded by. Like you said, I think you said seven acres. So it's mostly low lying scrub, maybe, and and then beyond that, there's a I think there's a hospital nearby and some some uh, neighborhoods. Is there pla- is there a lot of place where the homeless or the houseless, excuse me, are finding places to live there? Yeah, so it's pretty much right right there on that stretch of Pal and right next to I two hundred five. Right mm-hmm. there, it's an industrial area, basically. Right. Okay. Um, TriMet is right across the street from us. They're a big TriMet garage. The bus garage is right there. The Water Bureau has a huge chunk and a huge reservoir um, just to the east of us. And that's all wooded. And so there's lots of campers up in there. And then Mm. there's an auto body place on the other side of that. So it's all industrial. There's There's lots of trees, lots of woods for people to go camp in. And there's a housing development off of division which is like what half a mile north of us and um it's tucked way down in there so it's it's not even visible from our property interesting and 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 then there's a hospital on up the road a little bit but okay how how many people come to your church on a sunday yeah (laughs) yeah uh yeah we probably average 130 or so Okay, and so the um, and, and how many how many houses are you planning to put there, and how many are the city willing to allow you to have? I guess so. We are the zone that we are in. We are allowed fifteen short term housing units without getting a condition going through the conditional use process. So interesting. For now, that's our goal because then we don't have to deal with the conditional use stuff. Right. Um, it, right. And are you gonna yeah. are you gonna provide like electricity and water in these houses or what? So each each house or or unit or whatever will have a uh, solar paneled. It'll be called a juice box. It's a solar paneled powered battery, which will have a LED light on it, right. and which will have an outlet for them to charge cell phones or or whatever in the house. So mm. it won't be powered normally right but it'll have that and then they won't have running water or anything like that in the house it'll be kind of like a camp it'll be a campground got it type setup so they'll have a they'll have a shower trailer we have a shower trailer actually there already that's solar powered or gas powered Mm -hmm. um that they'll use for that we'll probably just use porta potties for the restrooms for now until we can come up with a a better plan Mm -hmm. for that um and then there'll be like a like a central gathering area where there'll be like an outside kitchen or grills or some of this is still in the works and we're just thinking through some of it, but I have a great idea. Um, I've, I've recently been, uh, I've been recently working with a, I don't know if a contractor is the right word. Does a guy that makes boxes to put toilet, to put toilet buckets in, is that a contractor? 
uh, I would call him a craftsmaker. <laughs> a, a maker, yeah, a maker. <laughs> I've got a maker guy. Anyways, I, I've been using uh, Nature's Head, which is a pretty high-tech and very expensive toilet. Yeah. Um, however, pretty difficult to clean. Um, and since I have an Airbnb, um, I'm having a difficulty explaining to my cleaning people how to clean. Anyway, so I've been entertaining the notion of what's called a loo or a bucket toilet. And uh, have, I've actually bought two of them from this guy. And the cool thing about this, the cool thing about it is the internet is now we learn all the like the little secrets about how to improve the quality of the simplest form of of uh, the solution. So I have been experimenting with these boxes that you drop the bucket in and then you have a bag and then you put a, a baby diaper in the bottom and then you put some sort of, you know, sawdust or something. And I've been using it in my own house because I wanted to kind of get the quote unquote feel for it. And it's really relatively easy to clean and easy to maintain and looks decent and works really well and it's super easy to clean because you just pull the bag and zip it closed. So no smell. Um, Interesting. No, like I said, the baby diaper it absorbs the liquids and it keeps the liquids from absorbing the the chips. Mm. Um, so that's I think predominantly major part of the smell. And then you cover the smell with the chips after each deposit. Mm-hmm. But um, <laughs> it's still again it's a simple solution. With just huh. a little bit more, little little different touch on the, you know, again, that baby diaper it makes such a huge difference. Huh, it's amazing because, of course, there's no liquid sloshing mm-hmm. around on the bottom of the garbage mm-hmm. can or the bottom of the bag when you're all done with mm-hmm. it. So, um, anyways, just a really nice, cool, cost-affordable um, option that I've been trying with and relatively happy with. Hey, Matt, well, how, how I imagine there are far more than 15 houseless people camping around your area. How are you how are you, okay, how are you going to select who gets in and who doesn't? Good um, question. Yeah, it is a good question. Uh, so the initial plan is we've we've already been kind of building the village before we've got the village structures. So we've been meeting with some of our houseless folks that we've begun to develop relationships with. So we've got this potential core group that have helped us develop the manual and the expectations and village rules and all that stuff. And so we'll probably start with that group because they've been the ones that have, have shown up each week and, mm-hmm. and been a part of that. And, um, they'll put in, they're going to help with sweat equity or whatever and help kind of build and, and be there to volunteer. So we'll probably start with that, but there'll be a, a process. There'll be an application um, because of the proximity to the church and all, we'll have to do a background check. Oh, yeah. Um, and we're pretty much just looking for, uh, child sex offenses and, and violent crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and some sort of an interview process that'll hopefully eventually involve not just, not just like board members, but will hopefully involve the community members themselves so that they kind of get to choose who they really want to be in community with and mm-hmm. you know they know the community the houseless community better than anybody so they'll know if this is a good fit for it or not um and so just kind of be a be that process and then as people rotate out we'll have some sort of a list uh some sort of a waiting list mm-hmm. and the idea being that while people are kind of on the waiting list or whatever they can still kind of come be involved in the village just probably not have a place to sleep but come and take advantage of other resources like maybe use the shower or or whatever hmm. while they wait mm-hmm. so some some so we've talked to a number of um 
tiny house solutions for the homeless and and some of the solutions that some of the features of their solutions were that in one case the the houseless people had to have jobs so that they could pay for part of some portion of some part of the cost or the rent or something like that in an, in another um, you could only stay for a limited period of time and then you had to go uh, and then another they didn't they weren't kicking out anybody once the rooms filled up the units filled up those people that lived there could live there for the rest of their lives if they wanted to mm-hmm. what are you guys doing relative to like tenant occupancy duration and whether or not the tenants should pay or and I don't have any perspective on that. I'm just strictly asking you your, your perspective on it. Sure. So for what we're doing, um, <clears throat> that's one of the first things that our pre or potential villagers talked about was they all wanted to pay something. So they're uh-huh. going to, it'll be, they all wanted to contribute something, even if it was just a dollar a day, they want to be able to contribute financially. And if somebody can't contribute financially, the first comment was, well, we can help them. Wow. We could all come together and help them, or they could make it up by extra volunteer hours or whatever. Mm-hmm. So the idea of not paying anything was not something they wanted to, they didn't want just a free place. They want to be able to support it somehow. So there'll be some sort of fee or whatever that we'll charge. Um, and then as far as duration of stay, we've pretty much just, we've. it's always been the idea that it would be transitional and everybody that has come mm-hmm. that we've been talking with expects it to be transitional but we haven't set a timeline on that just recognizing that everybody's going to take a different it's going to be a different process for each person but as long as they're keeping the rules meeting the expectations contributing to the life of the village and doing what they can to work towards some more stability i don't think we have a six months and you're done or anything like that it's just as long as you're kind of working towards that and being in a contributing factor than and not causing any other issues or whatever then I don't know why we would tell anybody to leave got it yeah. so what is what has been your biggest surprise um, are you surprised at the popularity or are you surprised at the complexity um, what is what is your biggest surprise has been and part two of the question is for your congregation for your board for the other people that have been involved maybe describe a little bit about their either thought process or their surprise were they supportive from the get-go and it's just everything's lovely or were they cynical and now they're seeing some of the benefit like describe how you take a, a sort of like this a mission that I consider to be rather large and complex and sell it for lack of a better term to your neighbors to your congregation to your board and most most importantly of course sponsors and donors sure um, for me the biggest surprise has been the response from our potential villagers and the meetings that we've been having with them and the relationships we've been able to build with them and um because the first meeting we had with them were what rules make sense to you? And, you know, immediately, no drugs, no alcohol, no stealing, no violence. Like they were the rules that I would have come up with if I was trying to dictate to them what rules they should live by. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those were, and then the ongoing conversations of we should be paying something. um, When can I come help? And the ones that have already showed up to help and just that involvement that they're not, they're not quote lazy. They're, they want to be involved. They want to, be productive they don't want to just sit around and wait for it to get done and then move in there so that's been i don't know if surprising is that's been encouraging for me to see that that that's their response Mm -hmm. to it Mm -hmm. um 
And then just the other su- surprising thing is just the the interest from the community, the interest from other churches, other congregations um, about what's going on and those that have really jumped in and wanted to be involved. I haven't really had to sell it a whole lot to them. I've just said, this is what we're doing. Like I went in, I haven't had to really, you know, cast that vision a whole lot with some of those folks. Um, And with our, with our, our, with Central's congregation, when we started talking about this, you know, it, it's been a process with the with that with our church because um, it's going to be on our property, and there's just you know lots there. There were there were some concerns, safety, um, sanitation were the biggest issues that we we really wanted to process and and talk about, and what's that going to look like, and um, and but working through them with that the the travel trailer destruction was not popular (laughs) (laughs) because you're not gonna be messy (laughs) oh did we say that (laughs) well like i said my entire perception of you and this entire organization prior to this conversation was strictly based on what i saw from the freeway yeah so um accurate or inaccurate that was my perception so i i'm not at all surprised that some people in the congregation, even those with the most open of hearts, oh yeah, you can only imagine like what we really didn't sign up for this. Yep. Yeah. And I was the same way. I was like, this needs to go. This has to stop. Yeah. It's not good. It's <laughs> just not good. So, um, I have an idea for you before we go on anymore. Before I forget this brilliant idea. <laughs> okay, maybe not brilliant, but you should put like a banner on that one fence. That fence that's like facing the freeway with just the website. Like, that's it. Well, that's a good idea, actually. What we're trying to do, or please call us if you have any concerns, or like anything at all. Just big old, you know, font on that. Because number one, it will also block the fence from the proverbial mess, which Mm -hmm. maybe, I don't know, you want people to see what's going on. But I was also thinking, of course, I had to Google the church name and then I had to find the phone number, which wasn't that difficult, of course. But, um, just FYI, I was just thinking of that, like, wow, I I would love for you to be able to share what you're doing, what you're going through, um, with, you know, with anybody that wants to, they're sitting in that lovely traffic. Have you gotten any, have you gotten any media interest (laughs) in what you're doing? (laughs) No, not yet. Hmm. We haven't. Hmm. Not yet. Um, so, so, okay. Wow. I know people. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you want media interest? Maybe you don't want media interest. Yeah, that's a bad question. You know, like, we hmm. we've been just kind of initially we were trying to just kind of keep it not necessarily <laughs> secret, but just not make it this huge deal. Yeah, because I know sometimes the media attention isn't the greatest. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've we wanted to make sure we had a plan and knew what we were doing, or at least had some idea of what we were doing before people started asking questions. Because I didn't want to say I don't. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I, we might do this. We might do that. But we've started to develop enough of a plan now that, you know, we're not. Well, and if you've driven by there in the last couple of weeks, like there's five or six tiny houses there now. Right. And uh, it looks like a construction site at mm-hmm. this point. Well, in um, that so case, not- I'm really, really thankful that you decided to come on on our podcast. I mean, we, you know, we have a lot of listeners throughout the whole world, and so if you had any trepidation about the press or uh, the number of people that you would reach, I appreciate you stepping beyond that comfort zone and, and coming on our show. Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. So th- this this organization cast. Would you call them Cascade Cluster? Cas- Cascadia Clusters. Cascadia Cluster. What an interesting name. Well, I tried to find them on the internet, and I didn't have Cascadia Cluster. I don't know if they're out there anywhere. Yeah, I don't. I keep coming to this instrument panel thing, Cascadia Cluster, when I search. Um, are, are they? How are you guys getting the material, and who's paying for it? So we've had. Um, do, just lots of donations. We've been working with the rebuilding center, so oh, we've gotten yeah. quite a bit from the rebuilding center. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a lady who was excited about what we were doing and just went to Home Depot with one of the builders. Wow! And bought material and on put it on her credit card and said, "There you go, get wow. what you want." So wow. that was cool. And a couple other folks have just made some donations. This the city had some leftover trusses from one of the. Uh, projects they were working on that were designed for a specific tiny house, and so they donated. Mm. They don't. They've given us uh, quite a few of those, and uh, it's just yeah. People have just been giving stuff our way, so we've got a pile of material there that has cost us very little. I'm, and uh, I'm actually yeah. surprised that the city is supporting this. Well, I think in general, the city of Portland um, is um, more than other. They're cities. trying, oh yeah. yeah, more than way more than other cities, yeah. I think. And and I I have to give them two points for trying. Mm-hmm. What they end up trying or doing doesn't always exactly end up how they wanted it to end yeah. up. Um, so I'm going to give them more than a couple of points for keep, you know, to keep trying and, and change it up and partner with new people and try a different flavor. Um, overall, I find them to be, um, very, very supportive Mm -hmm. of homeless solutions Mm -hmm. considering we have, it's, it's, it's a hot spot. Um, I also find them to be relatively supportive when you marry a problem with a really trendy kitschy yeah. <laughs> right. I'm not a, I have to admit I've, I've admitted it on prayer shows so I have to admit I'm not a huge fan shall we say of using the moniker tiny homes with the moniker of homeless be just from the perspective that people hear that I live in a tiny home and then they're like oh I'm so sorry <laughs> like no 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 wait a minute so now maybe I don't know maybe I maybe I'll evolve past that. Um, but again, I think it's in in not only Portland's best interest but anyone's, any city's best interest to partner up with organizations that you know they're organized and they have intentions and they have rules and they have guidelines. Um, there have been a couple of communities in uh, across the country that have actually been shut down because when the city showed up and said, uh, "What are you doing?" Basically, the people said, well, we don't know. We're going to put some stuff over there, and then we're going to put some stuff over there. And is that a problem? Mm. So I appreciate the methodical perspective that you're taking, and, I, and I'm, I'm glad that they're getting some support. On some levels, pretty surprising because, like you said, the mess and the, the negative perception. But on the other hand, I'm, I think it's in everybody's best interest to push forward. And, and now they're not going to be on wheels anymore. So I think that was a great solution, yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, working so far, we've had, it's been positive conversations with everybody, um, revolving with, within the city and with people around the area. It's been a pretty positive, um, uh, thing, especially now that we're able to take them and show them this is the kind of stuff that we're building. It's not going to look, not going to be trash. And mm-hmm. we have a plan for garbage and we have a plan for this. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
so it's been positive. But yeah, the I, I'm even hesitant to call them tiny houses because I mean they're not going to have plumbing, and they're you know they're not. In my mind, they're not a tiny house. They're like just a sleeping pod. Yeah, But but yeah. what what do you think, Matt, about what Michelle said about the? And I think there there's some there's some. Um, credibility to the concern that, peop- that people who believe that tiny houses are a really great option for middle-class people to um, escape debt and a- achieve a level of freedom that they can't have because of the debt or because of uh, demands of a really demanding job um, can can really benefit from living in living this way. And we've talked to many people who have simplified their lives. And as a, as a result of living in a tiny house, both economically and time wise. And, and they, you know, they say, you know, if more people would do this, we'd have a better society. And I'm not saying that everyone should do it, but, and so when, when ideas like yours, and we've talked, like I said, we've talked to a number of them when ideas like yours get, some limelight these people who say it's great for everybody uh are have cons- the same concern that michelle does that that the mainstream isn't going to want to live in them because they have this now tainted perception that these little tiny homes on these trailers are for poor people or, right. or homeless people what do you think about that i think it's a good opportunity for us to kind of push back against just the social class and the status and stigma that comes with each one that you know that I can't do that because then people are going to think I'm poor or yeah. whatever like yeah. I think it's a good time to, to talk about that I think what I've learned with just this project and and in talking with other folks from other, other villages um, for me it's not so much the size of the house or the the simplicity of it it's the community and the relationship that comes with with living in that kind of community you know they each still have their own unit but yet there's still this relationship that's being built and people are depending on each other and so if you know those in middle or upper class are wanting to live in tiny houses like maybe instead of just putting it on your own piece of property that you can create a, your own village and that they I think we have something to, to learn from those in poverty hmm. when it comes to how they truly live in relationship with each other. They might take advantage of each other, but we're human who doesn't. But like they're going to care for each other um, a bit more so than those in middle and upper class, I, I hate to say, at least in, in my experience. Hmm. But I think we have something to learn from each other for that. So I think it's a good learning experience. And I think, you know, the villages that we're talking about building, they're not like the the type of tiny houses that people are, you know, downsizing to move into. These are half the size of those tiny houses. So mm. maybe coming up with a different word to describe these as opposed to tiny houses mm-hmm. um, to convey the idea that this isn't, that there's no bathroom, there's no kitchen, mm-hmm. and, you know, the it's an eight by 10 box. <laughs> Sounds like a coffin. I have a six by eight Airbnb rental. So <laughs> do you? I do. Yes. I do. So, uh, um, well, I yeah. So I be- <laughs> I believe in the message. However, um, the overall message, um, even in in my case of my little forty eight square foot shock box, we'll call it. I I believe in advocacy of all sizes Mm -hmm. and, you know, it doesn't have a flushing toilet. It's got the little bucket toilet. It doesn't have a bathroom, but I have an outdoor shower, 
right? Sure. Heated water, you know, outdoor shower situation. So um, sure. I believe encouraging people to maybe be a little uncomfortable and stay in yeah. a smaller space. Nobody is going to live in 48 square feet, probably, you know, like in that situation. Um, not long term. Anyway. Yeah, not long term. But uh, <clears throat> so before we go, however, I do want to get a new one. I have um, tell us just one little story about how you. Boy, this sounds so cliche. Like, what inspired you to become a pastor? Like, was your father a pastor? Do you um, you have a young family as well? Tell us a little bit about your schooling and your overall mission for your for your church and your life. Sure. Um, well, no, my dad was in the military, so I, you know, I was he was not he was not a pastor. Um, as when I was in high school, um, you know, we were church-going family, Christian family. When I was in high school, um, I lost a good friend of mine in a car accident, and it was a tragic thing on homecoming night. It was, you could make a movie out of it, but um, it kind of shook me and my friends to the core about, you know, just how short life is, and and I watched people. I watched people struggle and stuff, and I really just started thinking, you know, I don't, you know, I spent a lot of time in prayer during that time, and thought, how can people get through this without God in their life? And so it wasn't long after that, that our church did a youth service and they said, Hey, do any of the teens want to preach? And so I said, sure, I'll do that. And just kind of shared my story about how God, I found encouragement and comfort in God during that loss and during that time. And, um, and it was through that, that God just kind of laid on my heart that this is kind of what I want you to do. I want you to lead people into relationship with me where they can find that encouragement and comfort and peace and and so then through that journey we um went to bible college seminary my wife and i got married and i was a chaplain at a rescue mission in kansas city when i was in seminary which then gave me a heart for the disenfranchised the Mm. drug addict and alcoholic and and kind of along the same vein of how do they do this without finding some hope and so just wanting to give them some hope um, and leading them into a relationship with Christ and the hope that we can have with that. And so that's just kind of all carried through in all of this. And then when we came over here to, to Portland and the, you know, we're moving tents off the front of the, the steps of the church to get in there on Sunday morning. It's like right here is our mission field. And there's people here who need hope and there's people here who need to experience the love of God. And we have the opportunity to do it. And so hopefully... I'm raising my kids to be compassionate and to love God with their whole heart and love their neighbors as themselves and just kind of do as Jesus has done for us and be an extension of that into this world and into our community. So very, very cool where we're at. Very cool, man. So um, thank you so much for being on, I should say very cool uh, pastor. Instead <laughs> of um, thank you very much for being on the show. Just one quick, one quick other question. Are, are you is there any requirement of the houseless people that uh, inhabit these units to come to church? No. Okay. Uh-uh. Okay, cool. Um, so uh, thank you so much for being on the show and for sharing what you guys are doing out there. Uh, Matt Huff, pastor of Central Nazarene Church in Southeast Portland that is putting up a tiny house, well, tiny pod community, let's call it. <laughs> there you go. For the houseless. We really appreciate you coming on board. And I think I'm going to come out there. Well, not now because all the roads are closed. But maybe later I'll come out and take a look. Traffic apocalypse. Yes, Nobody's yeah, going to the great. other side, yeah. of, the, uh, other side of the city it. for a while. Yeah. But yeah, uh, thank you, Perry, for wearing multiple hats today. <laughs> thank He's you. He's wearing the Perry hat and the Mark hat. 
Um, so thank you for multitasking. Yep. yep. And Rick McNerney, thanks for making us sound so good. And uh, Tiny, House list, Tiny House Podcast listeners, check out our next episode because it's going to be just as interesting. And we will see you on the flip side. Alexa, do you want us to sing us a song as we go out? I don't have an opinion on that. Well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Maybe she needed to pair more. Yeah. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening to Tiny House Podcast. To find us online, go to tinyhousepodcast.com, where you will also find our show notes, if we remember to put them there. Our logo was designed by the amazing Carolyn Maine. Our website is hosted by the gang at Sightcast. Our theme music is by Oma Studio. Please go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating, or whatever. You tiny house-loving bastard. Tiny House Podcast is probably made in Portland, Oregon.